turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26 as we continue our study in this book. 1 Samuel chapter 26. And again, we're going to be looking at the life of David and this last interaction actually that he and Saul have in this book. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to see you in it rather than ourselves, rather than our own motivations and our own glorification, that we would instead see you as master and king, as redeemer, um, as we come to the text, the, the entirety of the scriptures proclaim you as king, you as redeemer, you as the savior. And so Lord, as we come to this, help us to see you, Lord, help us to be convicted of our sins and help us to go after the truth that we hear in this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this past Friday was Cinco de Mayo, and if you're familiar with the holiday, it's celebrated quite a bit in our, in our country. It's more of a holiday about Mexican heritage more than it is anything in our country now. It's, it's fun. Uh, many Americans believe it to be the day of Mexican independence, but that is actually in September. Cinco de Mayo is a celebration of the Mexican Army's victory over the French at a battle called the Battle of Puebla. And I did some research on the Battle of Puebla, and there was a Mexican commander there who was retreating from the French, essentially, and he found this town of Puebla, the small town, and it happened to be heavily fortified. And so the French, who at the time had the arguably the world's most powerful army, assumed that it would just be an open and shut affair against this ragtag army. They had about 6,000 troops, whereas the Mexican army was around 2,000 and very ill-equipped. Yet, as the French continued to siege Puebla, they ran out of ammo. They soon found themselves on the losing end of this battle. And then this final act of audacity, the Mexican commander led a charge against the French troops during a rainstorm in order to drive them out of the area. I wish I could say for good. It was just kind of a one-time thing. The Mexican army stayed there in Puebla, and um, they went out against the French and won the day, but French would actually, the French would actually win the war. But for Mexico, this ended up being a a rally cry for them. This ended up being something that that told the world that we're no longer going to be a stomping ground for the rest of the world. Mexico would eventually win their independence, become a sovereign nation, based on the tax, the the um, the acts of this tiny army and their brave commander. And so, in our story today, David is up against similar odds. He has been for most of this book, and uh, he's up against. The best soldiers of Israel, their king, and, and he has his ragtag soldiers out in the wilderness. He has shown himself to be brave. He's shown himself to be a man of uncommon restraint, even though last week he almost destroyed a farm 
uh, but we'll just forget that episode. And even in, in that story, however, he was quick to repent and learn from his mistakes. So David has shown himself to be something of a special individual. And so today we're going to see his own brand of audacity as he takes the offensive against Saul. He's not going to attack Saul or his army, but he's just going to demonstrate to Saul that he is indeed the chosen king of Israel. He is the one that the Lord has picked. Saul's spear is going to make another appearance here, and it becomes a symbol of this transition that's going to be taking place. And so as we look at this text, I want to consider three ideas. Patience, that is given by faith. Obedience, strengthened by faith. And then lastly, deliverance. Guaranteed through faith. And so with that, let's go to the text. 1 Samuel chapter 26. You may remain seated as we read from God's word. 1 Samuel 26, starting at verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hecla, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph and are with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hecla, which was beside the road on east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place when where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, his, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp, of, into, into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went down to the, to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the, within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water at Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over the other side and stood stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army And to Abner, son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? 
Why then have you kept watch, or why then have you not kept watch over your Lord and King? For one of the people came in to destroy the King, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does the Lord pursue why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, he may accept an offering. But if it, is, if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the, inherit, in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, not, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do harm. Do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered him and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would... And I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Amen. This is God's word. And so before I begin, I want to give credit again to Pastor Ralph Davis for his work and exegesis on this text. I'm in debt to him when it comes to my biblical understanding of the narratives, and especially in view of Christ. Uh, the main thrust of this text I've derived from his commentary, but I've made specific applications to our church and, uh, and, and place in, in life. And so, real quickly, just a review of our last time, our last few times in 1 Samuel, what's been going on. We've seen that David can deal with temptation when it came to his interaction with Saul in the cave, right? Remember, Saul was in the cave, David could have killed him, but yet he just cut off a little bit of his robe and spared Saul's life. We've also seen that David can deal with foolish leaders, remember Nabal. And he dealt with him. And he, then he had to deal with his own choices, which were his choices were to strap on his sword and go in and slaughter the farm. But he was, he was uh, told of his wickedness and he repented. And so we've, told that he, we've, we've seen that he can even repent of his sin. And so today we're going to see the same ideas as we've seen before, kind of this culmination of all these ideas going forward. And so it's helpful for us to see things multiple times throughout multiple narratives because it helps us to develop a very consistent doctrine. It's a good thing for us when multiple texts in multiple places are telling us the same things over and over again. It should help us more and more 
to trust in the truth and the consistency of God's word. It's always consistent within itself. We are where the inconsistency comes in. Seeing these same ideas come from the early life of David and Saul's chasing him throughout the country is comforting to us, even though it wasn't to David at the time, but it should be to us because we are reminded that the Lord is consistent in the way that he deals with us, in the way that he dealt with David, and so forth. We need things to be made plain to us. We need them to be repeated to us. And so this story is going to seem familiar to us because here we have Saul chasing David. Saul could, or David can almost kill Saul, but he chooses not to. And then Saul kind of feels bad about it at the end and says he's never going to do it again. Well, we've heard that before. But at this time, they're actually never going to see each other. This is the last interaction that we read in the text. And so the first uh, point I want to look at is a patience that is given by faith. So Saul, he has this little group of tattletales now, the Ziphites. This is the second time that they've let uh, Saul know that David is in their wilderness. And so Saul, is, he gets together 3,000 chosen men is what it says. He, you know, we're, we're to believe that perhaps these are some of the best soldiers that he has. He's going out against David. David is basically nothing short of a superhero at this point in the text. And so David has heard that he sent out uh, these soldiers, so he sends out his own spies, and sure enough, Saul is there. And now David does something crazy. He makes a plan to go into Saul's camp. And it's kind of set up to let us know that Saul is basically in the center of the camp. He's next to Abner, and Abner's this, this great soldier as well, and around him are the rest of his men. And he's going to sneak into the middle of their camp, much like the Mexican army charging out against the French. It took lots of courage, maybe a bit of crazy even, but David trusted that no harm would come to him because he trusted in God's plan for his life. Now you come to Saul, who is sleeping, and we see this spear that is stuck in the ground at his head. I think we remember the spear from such episodes as the time Saul tried to kill David by pinning him to the wall, part one and two, and the time Saul tried to kill his own son with a spear. Remember those, those famous episodes? Well, this is that same spear, which represents Saul's recklessness and foolishness. It also represents his power. However fleeting his power is, I think this spear represents pretty much who Saul is. And now it is stuck in the ground at his defenseless head, and David is there to see it. So David has this friend, Abishai, and Abishai says, just let me do it. It'll only take me one shot with this spear. He's not, he doesn't plan to miss like Saul has missed all throughout the story. It'll only take just once, he says. And then David shows us something very important here in verse 9 through 11. Let's look at that. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed 
But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So what's, what is, what's going on here? David is basically relying on the Lord's timing in all of this. Even though he has this enemy right in front of him, he doesn't kill him. Instead, he leaves it up to the Lord. And maybe you could argue that, well, maybe the Lord was using him at this time to go in and kill Saul. Well, David didn't think so. And remember, David has felt remorse before for cutting Saul's robe, and he has no remorse here. And so David feels really good about his decision to go in and take the spear, but yet not do anything to Saul's person. He was waiting on the Lord's timing in dealing with Saul. And so how should we view this? Well, we should see it as the same. The Lord has a particular time and place for the events in our own lives. He is faithful, and it's in his faithfulness to us that we learn to wait on him. In his faithfulness to us, we learn patience. I mean, consider the first century church. As you read through the New Testament in particular, you get this real sense of longing and wanting the Lord to return. From the apostles writing it to the people he's writing to, you get this sense that they were desperately waiting on the Lord to return. Peter wrote about this. Turn with me to Second Peter. Second Peter, right before First John. Second Peter chapter three, and let's look at the first nine or so verses. And he's talking to people who are desperate for the Lord's return, the people who are suffering. And this is what he says to them. 2 Peter verse 3, starting at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they are deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that, by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what is he telling us here? Well, he set aside a people for himself. Paul warns us that scoffers will come and they will even say things like, where is this promise of his coming? 
I thought he was supposed to be here by now. They forget that the Lord is the creator and the destroyer. He can do both and has done both. The Lord is not slow. I love this. As some count slowness, and Paul kind of reorients our timeline to understand a thousand years to us is but a day to the Lord, meaning that for the Lord, when he says, I'm coming quickly to us, that may be a long, long time. And we will wait and he will wait until when? Well, his desire is that none of his people should perish. So he will wait until all of his children come to him. The percentage of those saved whom Christ came for and that will be saved is 100%. And he's waiting for that time to be completed. And so whatever situation that we are dealing with, we know that God is faithful. Number one, he is going to deliver us, his people, just like he said he's going to do. He can and will use whatever means pleases him in order to accomplish his will. He didn't use David to kill Saul, but he could have. He may not use us to bring about salvation in our loved ones, those that we've been praying for, those that we've been seeking salvation for, but he might. He may not use this church, Redeemer, to bring about revival in Murray and see people come to know Jesus, but he might, and so we are patient and we're faithful. He may not have many generations of faithful believers come from our families, but he definitely could. He calls us to be patient because he is faithful. And what do we do? Again, we remain patient because we know that his timing is perfect. His will is always good and right. And so then we wait for the Lord, just like David is in our story today. And so next, we look at an obedience strengthened by faith. David and Abishai kind of run off with this spear and Saul's uh, water jug. And uh, we read that the Lord calls calls the camp to come into this deep sleep and uh, so that they could get away. And then David kind of climbs up to on this mountain. You can kind of see what's going on here. And he calls out to the camp, provokes them, not with like just random trash talk, but more of so the truth of what just occurred. You let me come into your camp and here's the Lord's anointed among you. What kind of men are you? Saul was unprotected. The one whom he chases is the one who could have killed him again. But David spared his life once again. Why did he do it? Well, look at verses 22 through 24 with me. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord give you into my hand today, or the Lord gave you into my hand today, but I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and he may deliver me out of this tribulation. David knew what was right, and he acted on it. David has always known what is right, and he's always 
well, not always, most of the time, acted appropriately. His definition of what is right is influenced by what? His faith in God. God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And so David does what is right. Well, how does that translate to our own lives? I'll insert a few examples. We could come up with lots more. These are a few that I've definitely seen and talked with, talked through people with. Consider a struggling marriage, wrestling with bitterness, deceit at some level, and causing the normal cracks that all marriages have to become these large crevasses. How do you respond during these times? Do you remember the promises of God that he upholds marriage as holy? That he rewards a faithful wife and a faithful husband. The Proverbs say, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. In the tough times, it's harder to remember these promises. Do we believe that God has joined husband and wife together to become one flesh and God said it was good? Do we believe that Jesus came to set the curse on its head? To relieve the strife of sin that is, that is caused and that is at its root in all these relationships. We see this in Genesis 3 even. If we believe these things, what do we do? We respond in obedience. We stay faithful. But it's when we forget the promises of God that it becomes very easy to fall under temptation's spell. Starting with little things, ending with bigger ones. Any marriage that lets lies seep in and remain is in trouble because the promises of God become a memory and they are replaced with the imminent troubles of life. And so for all of us who are married, we rest on the promises of God. If we don't, we rest on lies. Think about a financial situation maybe. All of us can relate to this at one level. Even if you're a student, you have these upcoming financial needs. Because of college, college is not getting any more cheaper. It's actually getting exponentially more expensive. You worry about money. It becomes easy to act maybe unethically with money or unethically in your studies in order to get more money. Typically, sins regarding money have to do with some level of greed, which stems from the idea that the Lord has not provided what I want, and he will not provide, therefore I am going to provide for myself. And how do we respond in these quote-unquote lean times, even in times of financial blessing? Maybe we still feel like we got to have more. How do we respond to this? Paul says in the Philippians that may God... Or my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise of the Lord. Whose riches? His, which is all of it. Jesus says, my father provides for the birds. Are you not worth much more than they? Might be easy to forget that. Solomon warns in the book of Ecclesiastes, the lover of money never has enough and is never satisfied. 
He warns in Proverbs, dishonest money dwindles away quickly. If we believe in the promises of God and the warnings, even in Scripture, we show that in obedience when it comes to our finances, when it comes to acting right and good in our finances. When we stop believing that God takes care of his children, we sin and attempt to become masters of our own destiny in this regard. David shows us here that he knew what was right. God would make him king and he would bring this about in his own timing. So he acted on that promise. David knew that Saul's life was valuable, even though Saul was nuts. Even though Saul did not return the thought over and over and over again, David acted on his knowledge of the law And he did what was right. He did not take Saul's life. So it's our faith in the truth of Scripture and the promises of God therein that will cause us to act in obedience time and time again. So when we let our guard down in the slightest, when we become jaded by life, and it's very easy to do when when it's like us, people of plenty, We have all we want and need. It's easy to become jaded, forget the truth of the gospel. We begin to look to another truth to sustain us. We begin to look for another Savior. And so let us remember and cling to the promises of God as they will lead us to obedience. Turn with me quickly to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And this is Paul reminding this church of this same idea that we should act right because of what we have in store for us. Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another as if, as if, or, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all else, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father and through Him. Skip down to 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What do we have waiting for us? Whatever we do, work heartily as for the Lord. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance 
as your reward. Verses 12 through 17 tell us how we should be acting. We will receive the inheritance. The very riches of heaven are due the people of God because of what Jesus did for us. Then let us do what Paul commands us to do then. Cling to the word and dwell richly and let it dwell richly in us. And lastly, we have a deliverance guaranteed through faith. Turn back to 1 Samuel, verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Let's read that carefully, because it's true. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. The question for us then, brothers and sisters, how then can we live if we are rewarded for our own righteousness and for our own faithfulness? If the Lord repays us for these things, we are doomed, right? Were it up to our own righteousness and faith, we would be. But we rest not on our own righteousness. We rest instead on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you or he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is the righteous one. He is the faithful one. And when we call upon his name, when we call upon the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, he will save us. And what does he do for us? He gives to us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. We are delivered by his righteousness, his life, his work on earth, his death on the cross as a replacement For our sin, we are delivered by the faithfulness of the Father who did what? Who set aside a people for himself, a sinful people, mind you, and then sent them a redeemer, not just any redeemer, his only begotten son, just like he said he would, so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We live in light of that. We live because of that. We are doomed outside of that truth. And so let me warn you this morning, if you're resting on your own righteousness, you are doomed to face a just and fair God who gives people exactly what they deserve. And if you call upon the name of Jesus, you don't get what you deserve. Instead, you get mercy. And you receive salvation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so in conclusion, David looked forward to that truth. And the Lord delivered him through the one that would one day come from his royal lineage, Jesus. We look back at the work of Jesus and we trust in it today. We continue to trust in his promises And so, church, let us cling to the promises of God. In them, let us gain patience. 
as hard as that is, learning how to wait on the will of the Lord. This is something that we'll master. Well, eventually when we get to be with him, we'll, we will have seen what patience looks like perfectly. But let us obey because the Lord is faithful. We don't have to go after our own way because his way is good. And then let us trust in our deliverer. He has and will deliver his people just like he has promised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for your faithfulness, for your goodness to your people, as you've demonstrated with your son, David, as you demonstrated by sending your only begotten son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn what it means to wait on you, what it means to obey you in faithfulness and to wait upon you. We thank you for the, the deliverance that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.